This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm James Glenday, coming to you from Canberra on Ngunnawal country. Welcome to This Week. For decades, Rupert Murdoch's name has been synonymous with the media, the power behind it, and for some, the problems with how it operates. Now the 92-year-old is stepping aside for his eldest son, Lachlan, who'll take the helm of both Fox and News Corp. The announcement was made on the mogul's own network, Fox News, with a, well, glowing tribute. His life's work has left an indelible imprint on the global media landscape. His contributions are both innumerable and extraordinary. And we thank him for letting us be a part of it all. Thank you, Rupert, and congratulations. Indeed, and without him, we would not be here. True on that. And we thank yes. him for that. And the, the, I, the point about his being in robust health and robust with ideas, yes. we can attest to that. <laughs> You're right away. Now, no matter what you think of Rupert Murdoch, the expansion of his empire has been remarkable. But not many people assume this will be the end of the Rupert Murdoch story. I can't see a scenario in which Rupert just sets the out-of-office email and leaves his phone mm. on the bedside table and goes paddleboarding or something, I think it still remains to be seen exactly what will happen once Rupert is 100% out of the picture. And I I do think the only scenario in which he will be 100% out of the picture is when he's moved on to the next big circulation battle in another life. Walter Marsh is the author of Young Rupert, The Making of the Murdoch Empire. Well, it's kind of been a long time coming. I mean, people have been asking Rupert about his succession plans for 40 years, I think I was reading interviews from the mm. 80s where people were, and the late 70s where people were asking, you know, which of your children is in, you know, the box seat. Uh, but certainly, you know, in since maybe 2017, we saw the big sell off of 20th Century Fox to Disney. And then he had some health scares. He slipped on his yacht at one point. And then mm. obviously with the sort of back and forth with his two sons vying for the main sort of position as heir apparent. Uh, and then, you know, Trump, January 6, all these things, these lawsuits, it's all been building towards this kind of end point where inevitably we would know that Rupert would, would step back at some point. It's just been a, a question of how and, and when and um, whether he would mm. ever resign or, or wait to be you know, taken out in a box, I suppose. Yeah, just on that, I think quite a lot of people thought that he might actually die in the role. Why, why mm. now, do you think? Well, I, I mean, there has been this progressive handover of power to Lachlan once it became clear that James... Um, the other son, the second-born son, was sort of, you know, cashing out of, of the business, so to speak, uh, and mm. taking himself out of that race. So in many ways, this probably won't be that big a change. But without the, I guess, this chairman emeritus role, we're still kind of seeing what that actually entails and kind of the fine print of that role. But um, mm. it seems like he will still, you know, have one foot in the door and will be doing... <laughs> pretty much the same thing he's always been doing. Perhaps pulling the strings from afar. Now, Rupert built Mm. his empire over seven decades. He got a bit of a head start. Not all of us inherit a small newspaper stable, albeit one heavily in debt. But can you tell us, what was the young Rupert like? Yeah, so Rupert started out, he was the son of Sir Keith Murdoch, who was, for his time, one of the most prominent and often one of the most controversial newspaper 
barons, I guess, of his era. So, you know, living and breathing the world of newspapers papers with this um, workaholic press baron for a father. So he would have been surrounded by that, even as he kind of had this sort of youthful rebellion to him where he was this brash, sort of loud left-winger at Geelong Grammar <laughs> and at uh, Oxford. Um, someone just sent me the other day, actually, sort of a class photo of him from Geelong Grammar and it's 1945 so he's a 13 year old at this point and he's got blonde hair he's cross-legged it's just you know this tiny little boy and he signed the back of it Como Murdoch. It's said and I think you write about this in your book that he had a bust of Lenin at Oxford is that actually true and was Rupert really a radical or was it a bit of an act? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of his peers at the time didn't necessarily take it very seriously, but there is this quite extensive paper trail of him being this very outspoken left-wing guy in the, you know, records of the debating society at Geelong Grammar. He's always arguing some very left-wing things. And as for the bust of Lenin, I haven't seen an image of it, but I did find one letter (laughs) where he describes celebrating the birthday of the great teacher, as he called him by singing some kind of anthem in front of the dust uh, with all of his friends. So uh, whether or not he was just kind of posturing at rebellion as the son of a conservative press lord or actually deeply believed any of these things, one way or another, once he sort of got a whiff of power, he dropped them pretty quickly, which in the context of everything that came afterwards makes you think that maybe he isn't really a true believer in any of the Mm. stuff he's been pushing in his papers, but that's where the power is, that's where the audiences are, and that's his kind of cynical calculation. Mm. In his earlier years, uh, Rupert seemed to learn that if he was going to succeed, he had to expand. How much did this lesson, do you think, permeate his future decision-making and really pave the way for what came next for his empire? Yeah, absolutely. So when he first sort of took over, he was coming up against his father's old colleagues at this big national Herald and Weekly Times empire who had, you know, was far better resourced, had all these papers, um, all these reporters all around the world. And to fight back against that, he knew he had to expand. He couldn't just be this relatively small company. But because the family didn't have, you know, a lot of liquidity, I guess, he had to borrow money, which set him into this sort of treadmill, I guess, of, you know, he'd borrow money to buy a new paper and then immediately has to push the profitability of that paper and turn it around so that he starts paying off that debt. And then to continue to be competitive in order to keep everything ticking along, he's got to keep expanding and keep growing that network and and making those economies of scale and borrowing more money and buying more papers and pushing them all to become more profitable to pay off these debts to keep family control because he didn't want to just raise capital by mm. you know bringing in extra investors because that would dilute the family's control there were these kind of really structural economic factors that put Rupert on this path of kind of propulsive never-ending expansion which had the effect I guess of making all these papers push the envelope much harder and try and be as profitable as possible, challenge norms and do whatever they could to build an audience and sort of shake up the newspaper scene in every new market that he entered. Mm. Um, And we've kind of seen uh, effects of that uh, Mm -hmm. in democracy after democracy, market after market all around the world. He seemed to become more conservative as he grew older, or perhaps at least he saw a gap in the market, particularly in the United States. His more liberally-minded son, James Murdoch, quit the News Corp board in 2020 because of disagreements over editorial content. Do we know what family relations are like now? 
Yeah, um, I mean, I haven't been able to pierce the inner sanctum of the Murdoch Empire, but <laughs> it does sound like there is a, a real kind of hard and fast rift between the Lachlan camp and the James camp. There was a bit of speculation over the past past year, past two years really, that even though Lachlan is, you know, the heir apparent at the moment, as soon as Rupert does pass away, you know, all... All bets are off, um, because Rupert, so the, the family controls the company, but that's through a, a family trust. There are eight votes. Uh, four of them belong to Rupert and the other four are for his four adult children. And Lachlan's only one of them. And when Rupert dies, his votes are extinguished. Unless in this latest development, the, the, the playing field is redrawn, which, which seems unlikely because it would need the, um, the approval of those other three children. But, you know, when Lachlan's coming up against James, who's been very vocal about what he sees as, you know, being bad for democracy and being bad for the world that Fox News and their other outlets are putting into into the world. Um, and then he's got, you know, Sister Liz and then Prudence, the eldest, you know, that's a, that's a three-person voting block against one. And even though the Murdochs don't control the entire company there. It is kind of gerrymandered in a sense to give them a disproportionate pull mm. over the voting power and the decision-making. Should we expect, do you think, to see much change under Lachlan? Yeah, well, they're definitely... I mean, Lachlan, a lot of his big wins and the things he's accomplished in his time haven't been necessarily tied to news or the news media. It's things like the real estate group, realestate.com.au. He's got that big chain of commercial radio stations. So I don't know if, if one, he's going to be the same kind of hands-on uh, sort of editor-in-chief of the whole company that Rupert was. You know, editors all around the world could expect at the drop of a hat just a phone call from Rupert, mm. wherever he was in the world, you know, dictating some change or some demand Mm. Lachlan, however, you know, when we saw reports of the from the Dominion Fox News lawsuit, they definitely have different leadership styles. Lachlan doesn't seem to be quite as quite as hands on. Seems to just be more interested in, in the money side. So I think if the Murdoch Empire does live on in in some form post Rupert, it might not be a media empire necessarily. Walter Marsh is the author of Young Rupert: The Making of the Murdoch Empire. Well, with winter only just behind us, it all felt a little unreal this week as temperatures soared well into the 30s in many parts of Australia and bushfires were keeping firefighters busy up and down the east coast from Queensland to Tasmania. On top of that, the Bureau of Meteorology declared that things are likely to get even hotter and drier this summer, officially confirming the return of the two weather phenomenons associated with those conditions, El Nino and the Indian Ocean Dipole. It's all brought back terrible memories of the black summer bushfires, with residents of areas that were ravaged then fearful of what's to come. I've lived in Eden for the past 40 years. The whole bush is a bomb. It's ready to go off. It is so dry. If it goes, it's going to go big time again. My name's Wendy, and I've lived in Malakuta for eight years. We've had fires all around us yesterday. The Facebook page is just going off like a machine at the moment. For the people of Malakuta, they're terrified. And as Carl Braganza, the manager of climate monitoring at the Bureau of Meteorology, told the media, forecasters are going to be closely watching what happens in the coming days and weeks. 
I think El Nino means that we've elevated the risk of fire danger and extreme heat in particular in terms of the hazards that we face. We aren't leading into this summer on the back of extended drought, which somewhat reduces the risk, but we have seen eastern New South Wales dry out quite particularly. If we continue to dry out the landscape over the next three months, and the Bureau will be watching that really closely, then we'll be adjusting our message accordingly in terms of the risk. So what does it all mean for the summer ahead and beyond? How worried should we be about the return of the sort of weather extremes we've seen in the past? And this time around, what are the chances it could get even worse? We should be prepared for it 110%. We should have been prepared for this yesterday, 10 years ago. And we have kind of learnt from previous disasters, such as Black Saturday in 2009 in Victoria and Black Summer a few years ago. So we are better, I guess, as a community, putting in better practices. But certainly these conditions aren't going to go away If anything, they're going to get worse as climate change amplifies, Mm -hmm. which is like, yeah, again, I'll put my scientist hat on and say that's concerning. But as a citizen, it's terrifying. Associate Professor Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick from UNSW Canberra is a climate scientist specialising in extreme events with a particular focus on heatwaves and how they're changing as a result of global warming. It is very concerning. It's so early in the season. Mm. I know the southeast coast had catastrophic fire danger ratings and it's so early. Like I was surprised to hear that. I'm not surprised knowing the data, but I'm surprised to see it's so early in the season this year, particularly after we've had three back-to-back La Ninas. Mm. And then as I guess as a human being, as a, you know, a citizen and as a parent, like it's, it's frightening as well to see these conditions happen right now. And it's not just fires, is it? Because heat waves on their own, which we did have, Yep. can be really, really dangerous for quite a lot of people. Correct. So this, the heatwave we had this early in the season probably wasn't dangerous to most people. Mm. There is a qualifier there. But certainly when they hit the high 30s, early to mid 40s, and they're like that for like five, six, seven days in a row, the health toll is huge. They affect the elderly and the young more often. They exacerbate underlying health conditions. But on top of that, it's not an instant impact, unlike other types of disasters. If they're affecting our health, usually see the impact maybe 24 to 48 hours down the line. It's not something that happens straight away. This week, the Australian Bureau of Meteorology declared an El Nino. It did that coinciding with this big heat wave. It didn't really come as a big surprise to anyone. But why did it take so long for Australia to catch up with other international organisations who had been talking about an El Nino for some time? This is a really good question. I have actually been asked this a lot lately, but I think it's good people are asking this question. El Nino and its opposite phase, La Nina, are coupled phenomena. I know that's really science speak, but what that means is it's a very tight interaction between the ocean and the atmosphere. Mm. And what we've seen for months is sustained warming in the sea surface temperatures off the coast of South America. However, the atmosphere hadn't responded yet. It was still somewhat normal or somewhat still in a La Nina pattern, but that's changed now. Not only has it responded, but it's been sustained for, I think, probably two to three months. And that's what the Bureau was waiting for. They didn't want to call it solely based on sea surface temperatures, which, by the way, are really, really, really hot. Mm. And that's what some other agencies did. That's fine. That's their prerogative. They have slightly different thresholds of when to call an El Nino, but that's why the Bureau waited for so long. I would add on that, if I can, that they actually announced it in, an, in their – it was out around. So usually they do their climate outlook once a fortnight. And this happened we – had we had an outlook last week and then we got this statement again this week. So I, I was shocked to see that, not shocked that it was announced – but, yeah, it was that important that they decided to bring it forward. Early. They wanted to get it out there. Yeah. Uh, not only 
are we going to have an El Nino to contend with? We're also hearing a lot about the emergence of the Indian Ocean Diapole, sometimes called the IOD. Yeah. So what is that? And uh, what does that do? Yeah, so I think everyone's really used to hearing about ENZO, or which basically is the acronym for El Nino and La Nina. Mm. That's not the only thing that controls our climate and our weather. There's actually quite a few drivers, as we say. One of the other ones is the Indian Ocean Dipole. So it's how the sea surface temperatures oscillate in the northern Indian Ocean. It's kind of like an El Nino, but not really. Mm. It's just that it's called the dipole because you will have warm sea surface temperatures off the west coast of northern Australia. And then you'll have the opposite sea surface temperatures in the other part of the Indian Ocean, but it's mm-hmm. always in the Pacific. And they can oscillate kind of like El Nino does, but on a shorter time scale. Mm-hmm. And that affects weather in southeast Australia, mainly in spring. It's not really active any other time of year, but it can be a very sharp driver. So it can have a very quick interaction. We did have a positive El Nino just before the black summer, mm-hmm. which amplified the drying, amplified the heat and did contribute to that really catastrophic season. It's not to say we're going to have exactly the same conditions this year, but it can certainly ramp up the drying and ramp up the heat very quickly, which is probably what's going to happen. Yeah. So you kind of took my next question there. Okay, so that, no, 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 no. It was great. <laughs> so what can we then expect in the weeks ahead, the months ahead? I know it is very difficult to predict the weather, but yep. looking at what we see now. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting with very bated breath, having a positive IOD and an El Nino that's looking really strong when we look at the sea surface temperatures and climate change on top of that. It's the perfect storm, pardon the pun. You know, mm. we've got two very active modes of climate variability that drive hot and dry weather on top of a background warming of about 1.5 degrees Celsius for Australia. That's not a good mix. That is definitely weighting the scales towards much hotter and much drier conditions for much of Australia. Mm. And that's, that's really what I'm expecting to see. And the fact that we had that heat wave over southeast Australia, especially in, along the coastline, that's very consistent with all three of those factors. Mm. And... Was the heat wave this early a sign that our weather is increasingly erratic and unpredictable? Because although we have had warm Septembers in the past, this was really quite something. It really was quite something. We know that our summer seasons are getting longer and synonymous with the heat wave that we saw was the reduced period that we're able to do hazard reduction burns for fires. There's a very consistent trend that that sort of window is snapping shut and that will continue in the future. So I wouldn't use the word erratic. I would say prolonged and longer Mm. and more extreme. Yes, in some ways the weather will become more erratic, but we know we're going to get heat waves earlier in the season. We know they're going to be more like summer events in spring, and that's precisely what we saw. So they are quite predictable in that way. There's a fair bit of anxiety about bushfire, which is uh, probably pretty understandable given that a lot of people were traumatised during the black summer bushfires only a couple of years ago. Given this is kind of the first hot summer we're going into since then, is there any reassurance you can give those communities? I think the fact that we've learnt from that, I think, you know, case in point, what happened down on the south coast a few days ago, there was a catastrophic bushfire rating, so they closed the schools Mm. and the community was heightened. Yes, obviously people were frightened and panicked, but that was the right thing to do to make sure that as little people as possible were in harm's way. And I think that's what we need to do moving forward. We need to do more, so much more, not just at the community level, but state, federal as well. But we are better prepared. We have learnt from that. So I think we, we, we should draw some sort of comfort from that, that we 
at least have a better handle on what to expect when these conditions arrive. And just lastly, what are the odds of the high temperatures persisting, not just into summer, but maybe even into autumn next year as well with the weather pattern that we have? Look, pretty high, pretty high. It's hard to predict how long El Nino will stick around for at this point. The Bureau is saying at least until mid to late summer. Sometimes they go longer than that. Mm-hmm. The IOD will drop off um, by late spring, early summer. It just it dissipates quite quickly. But it will have a lasting effect. It will, amplifying the, it will amplify the drying of the fuel loads. It will increase the risk of heat waves early, which we've already seen, and that will continue to happen. So, yeah, seeing – and then there's climate change, obviously, underneath that as well. So it could be a very, very long, hot summer, absolutely. You know, what's going on in terms of El Nino and IOD are priming the conditions. So it it will start off the drying and the heat. But once that sort of machine gets going, both drought and heat waves feed off each other. You're more likely to have heat waves when you have a drought. Mm. And then also on top of that, heat waves amplify the drying, making droughts worse. What we call a positive feedback, they feed off one another and amplify each other. And that's likely what we'll see. This is the kickstart, which will then be kicked further because of climate change. But it could set up a chain of events that, you know, perhaps if we don't have super severe bushfires this year, it's loading the dice for that happening in the following summers to come. That was climate scientist, Associate Professor Sarah Perkins-Kirkpatrick from UNSW Canberra. Now, families around the country hitting the road as school holidays start might experience something of a price shock at the cost of filling up the tank with petrol. Fuel prices are soaring, so much so that the Reserve Bank is worried those hikes could further stoke inflation. Motorists, meanwhile, are taking the hit. It's just another uh, cost of interest rates, really, isn't it? This inflation, the RBA has got it wrong. Fuel's taxing us, knocking us around, not the interest rates. <laughs> but yeah, it adds up pretty quick over a period over a month. Definitely noticing. How can you not notice? But at the same time, I'm glad that I can still buy petrol and use petrol. The time is fast coming when we're going to have to think about something else. Look, it is a significant hit to the household budget. Uh, It just means I've got to buy less fuel for the week. That's a psychological thing. I think any over $2, any under $2, you don't really think about it. I'd say it's firmly in uncomfortably high territory, James. Daniel Mercer is the ABC's energy reporter. I'm sure you've noticed when you've gone to the petrol station recently that the price is over $2.00 a litre, in some cases well over $2 a litre. And so, you know, when you fill up the tank, as I did the other day, it was almost on empty. It very quickly went way over $100. And that's a fair old whack of money to shell out, you know, in a single transaction for a an essential cost of living. And obviously that's just a story that's common right across Australia. Dan, we had a short reprieve after the Ukraine war hiked up prices, but that moderation seems to have ended, and just in time for the school holidays. I'm lucky in the sense that my kids are still sufficiently young and little that the school holiday run isn't necessarily a big thing, but it won't be long (laughs) before these sorts of petrol prices will be a real pain in the neck. I mean, just for a bit of context, petrol prices at well over $2 a litre right Mm. now is much higher than they were even after the federal government's temporary halving of the fuel excise levy was ended last year in September. Right, so it is really high at the moment. I mean, I've noticed it filling up myself. How much of an effect does the price of fuel have on an average Australian household? It's a major cost. It's funny, in most of my reporting, James, I tend to sort of focus on the 
power side, the electricity mm. side of things. But oil and fuel prices are actually a much bigger cost to the average Australian household. I mean, typically, it's sort of right. in the order of $5,000 a year, you know, compared with an average electricity bill of about, say, $2,000 a year. And gas prices for most of us are, you know, materially, materially lower than that again. So fuel costs are a huge chunk of your disposable income. And when they go up like they're going up at the moment, it actually hurts probably a lot more than most of us even realise. Mm. So what's pushing up the price of fuel now? Essentially, it is the big oil producers led by Saudi Arabia and Russia, who together account for about a quarter of global oil production, teaming up with another sort of group of nations in a cartel known as OPEC+. Plus putting a squeeze on supplies. You know, they control between them, this grouping, anywhere between 35 and 40% of global oil production. And it's enough to push the market around kind of where they want it to go, so long as there's sufficient demand. And recently they recommitted to pretty significant production cuts. And all that's really doing is putting upward pressure on prices and, and really kind of minimizing the risks of prices falling, unless there's a big slump in demand, and right now the global economy is actually doing surprisingly well. And so that demand is there, and hence, you know, we've seen prices heading up towards US $100 a barrel, which is a big benchmark. Mm. If it gets over that, then it's really into sort of nosebleed territory. Right. And so why does this group want to keep prices high at the moment? It's for self-interest, effectively. I mean, Russia is obviously now informally part of OPEC, and it's got a very expensive war effort in Ukraine to fund. It's costing them a lot of money to sustain that war. With Saudi Arabia, it's a bit more interesting. Saudi Arabia has traditionally been aligned with the US and the, and the West, for want of a better term. And that has often meant that Saudi Arabia has kept production up to keep oil prices down. But there seems to be a bit of a split emerging between Saudi Arabia and the West these days. And Saudi Arabia is pursuing its own interests more aggressively. Given that oil provides the bulk of its wealth, higher oil prices obviously suit those interests because it gets a lot more tax, it gets a lot more money to spend internally and on its own interests. Here in Australia, there is a, a real risk that the cost of fuel could keep inflation higher than the Reserve Bank would like. And that's because the price of fuel ends up being priced into transport and so the cost of groceries and things like that. Could it lead to further interest rate rises? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. In the normal course of events, James, it probably wouldn't, but this isn't a normal course of events at the moment. Inflation is obviously uncomfortably high already. It seems like it's really quite line ball what the RBA does at its upcoming meetings, whether it leaves rates on hold or whether it jacks them up again. And it rarely moves, you know, just in one single increment, it often sort of backs up a rise with another rise. Mm. And a large part of that is because of this uncomfortably high oil price. I believe that the oil price that we are actually paying is a lot higher than the RBA had assumed, yeah. um, you know, as recently as August. And so it's a major economic cost right across, you know, households and businesses, it pretty much filters into everything mm. that we buy off a shelf not to mention, you know, the fuel that we get at the Bowser. And so, you know, it's really actually putting a fair bit of pressure on the RBA to lift when it might not otherwise want to. One factor we haven't discussed, Dan, is the weak Aussie dollar. Now, that's not really doing us any favours, is it? 
No, definitely not. And that's the other part of this equation, James, mm. for sure. Obviously, oil is primarily traded in US dollars. And so when the Australian dollar against the greenback is weak, as it is now, it's at about 64 cents in the dollar. Mm. It just means that the cost of buying oil from overseas for Australia goes up and we import the vast majority of the oil that we use in Australia. And so a weak Australian dollar is adding significant upward pressure to the prices that we pay. So if I could get you to gaze into your crystal ball, when can we expect prices to go down again? Do you think they'll fall before Christmas or are they really here to stay for some time? Look, all of the experts seem to think that these cuts by Russia and Saudi Arabia and OPEC are going to stay in place until the end of the year. Hmm. And so if you were a betting person, you'd probably think that it's wise to bet on prices staying higher. So expensive Christmas holidays as well. Effectively, there's always caveats, right? The Chinese economy or the global economy could you know, hit a pothole and all of a sudden demand falls away and that could change the equation. But it really does seem on the balance of things that prices are going to be up and we're going to be seeing fuel up around that $2 mark for quite a while yet. Australia is trying to boost its take-up of electric vehicles. Do higher prices help with that at all? Does it make people who can actually afford an EV more likely to make the switch? I think it definitely does. And we're still talking relatively at the margins here because less than 1% or about 1% of the fleet of cars in Australia is electric. But I think the other really important indicator here is that as recently as last month or the month before last, the share of EVs in new car sales was up around 8%. And it's come a long way very quickly just in the past couple of years. And so more and more people are buying them anyway. And this just adds to that momentum. And it does that for a number of reasons. One is probably psychological, but the other one is truly financial because with you know fuel prices such a major component of your annual budget, if they go up materially, then that just means that the gap between the cost of running an EV and the cost of running mm. an internal combustion engine car, it diminishes and it adds to the case for the EVs. And certainly punters out there seem to take that view. Daniel Mercer is the ABC's energy reporter. And that's the episode for this week. You can subscribe by searching for the This Week podcast. It's produced by Nick Grimm, Laura Corrigan, Marcus Hobbs and me, James Glenday. Catch you next time.